0: Our Father, we're thankful for every meeting that is taking place in this campus today, our adult Bible fellowships, our discovery classes, those who will minister to our children in the nurseries and Sunday school hour, those that will gather tonight for Awana, and our time right now as we open your word. May our hearts be open to its truth. Thank you, Lord Jesus, just as you promised you didn't leave us as orphans, but you sent the spirit to live in us thank you spirit of god that you illumine the truth that you inspired and we ask you to do that this morning i pray that you would help me and fill me empower me that i can rightly divide the word of truth that your ministry of convicting lost people of sin righteous and judgment might be true that they might see their need to be saved and those who are saved that we might see our need to grow deeper we ask it in jesus name and for his glory Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn to Revelation chapter 20. If you're new to the Bible, it's easy to find. It's the very last book in the New Testament. And if you happen to be joining us for the first time, I'm not working right now through a book of the Bible like I typically do, but I'm doing a special series entitled God's Prophetic Schedule. And even if you have just been a casual reader of Scripture, you cannot miss the fact that the return of Jesus from heaven is a central theme found in the Bible. God is not silent on this subject. There is coming a time when the Messiah will return, when he will rule and literally reign on the earth. In fact, seven out of 10 chapters in the New Testament address this. And the Old Testament is replete with the coming of Jesus to set up a kingdom on the earth. In the New Testament alone, there's over 300 specific references to both his first and his second comings. In the nature and purpose of his coming is what we're going to explore among other things this morning. Really, we've been doing that through this whole series. Uh, The scripture says in the book of Revelation that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, when you study prophetic portions of scripture, if you miss Jesus, you've missed it. It's really about him. So we're not just studying what God says about the future for God alone knows the future. That's why the Bible alone has prophecy in it that has been fulfilled. There's no fulfilled prophecy in any other religious book. And just as God literally actually fulfilled over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament realm, you can expect him to literally actually fulfill prophecy concerning the return of the Lord. And so Jesus, the last word spoken in the revelation by him, is he said, yes, I'm coming quickly. And it's a word that means In the twinkling of an eye, you might say, to use Paul's metaphor, very quickly, suddenly, so fast, wow, it will be here. To which John replies, amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. Now, as you read the Old Testament, as we've seen, sometimes in a single paragraph of Scripture, the whole career of the Messiah is unfolded, both his first and his second coming, where he comes as a suffering servant, but he also comes as a reigning king. And of course, God foreknowing Israel's rejection, not all Jews rejected Jesus. There's at least, conservatively speaking, somewhere between 25 and 30,000 Jewish believers in the early church. In fact, the early church initially at Pentecost, it was all Jewish people. But he came to his own, and his own received him not. And God foreknowing that, God didn't abandon Israel. He is faithful to his promises. God right now is working through the church, through the body of Christ. The church not being an institution, but according to the New Testament, everyone who's been regenerated, everyone who's been born from above. And so between these two mountain peaks of prophecy, the first coming of Messiah and the second coming, suffering servant, sovereign ruler, is this valley in between, and we call it the church age. And one of these days, The church age will end and God will switch places with a Gentile church and it will be led in the future by Jewish people. During the coming tribulation, it will be the Jewish people who will evangelize the world and finish the great commission. And so this morning I want to to explore this coming time when Jesus will literally come to earth. I've entitled it, this is part two, when heaven comes to earth. Jesus will literally come to the earth and he's gonna rule and reign for a thousand years. Now last time, two weeks ago, I did an interim service last week because I wanted to ask and answer a question I've been bombarded with lately. But last time in great depth, we covered the first five verses. I'll just briefly review it. But to give some flow of thought to our passage, I wanna begin reading in verse one of Revelation 20. I hope you have found it by now. We read "Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon and the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or in on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I'm sure you cannot help but miss as we read these 10 verses of scripture, that six times in the span of seven verses, God mentions a thousand year reign. We call that in theological terms, the millennium. There are many terms that we use in Christendom that come from Latin. Mille means a thousand annum year, so we speak of a thousand year reign. And the reason is because the Latin Bible was almost the exclusive translation used by the body of Christ for a thousand years. So there's a day coming, the Old Testament prophesies it, the New Testament echoes the same truth, when the Christ, the Messiah, will literally come back and rule and reign for a thousand years. And so we even pray it. The Old Testament saints anticipated it, but Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, Every year at Christmas, we typically read Christendom across the world, texts like Isaiah 9. And again, this is one of those passages where the whole uh, program of what the Messiah will accomplish is unfolded. For a child will be born to us. That's his first coming, the incarnation. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. That hasn't happened yet. When Jesus came the first time, he wasn't in charge of all the governments of this world. Not yet, but he will be. Jeremiah the prophet, in the 23rd chapter of his prophecy, speaks of Messiah's rule on earth. Listen to these words. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. That's never happened since they've been in the land. It's going to happen. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness, one of the titles for the Christ or in Hebrew, the Messiah. The apostles believed that the coming kingdom on earth would actually happen. And so if you remember on the Mount of Olives and the day Jesus ascended into heaven, they asked the question, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Jesus had just spoken about the coming spirit and his outpouring upon his people. Of course, these guys were sharp theologically, and they understood that in many Old Testament passages, the moving of the spirit of God on the people of God would happen during the coming kingdom. And so they ask a natural question, is this the time, Lord? that you're going to indeed have your kingdom that the prophets wrote of. And if there was ever a time for Jesus to say, no, there is no literal kingdom on the earth, I'm done with Israel, it would be now, but he doesn't say that. On another occasion, Peter, the spokesman, asked the Lord, he said, look, we've left everything to follow you. What can we expect in the future? And Jesus told his apostles, truly I say to you, you plural, you all, that you have followed me in the regeneration when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Just as a believer is regenerated, he's made new, he is born again, the scripture speaks of a coming time when the creation which also fell when man fell will be regenerated, it will be restored. It's during the millennial reign of the Messiah. Peter, in Acts chapter 3, after Christ had ascended to heaven, preached this truth. He said, whom heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things. He's preaching about Jesus. He's ascended into heaven, and he's going to be there until, until the period of restoration of all things. This is the regeneration that Jesus just mentioned when the Messiah will literally rule on the earth, the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. He was just reminding them that in Moses and in the prophets that the Messiah will literally rule on the earth. And what's new here in Revelation chapter 20 is not the concept of the kingdom, but the length of the kingdom. Different Jewish rabbis in history have thought different amounts of time. Some said it would be 40 years long. Some said it would be 70 years long. One famous rabbi said it would be 400 years long. Another said it would be 7,000 years long. But what God reveals is, no, it's actually 1,000 years long. And this is the first time God reveals the length of the reign of Messiah on the earth. 1,000 years you say, is that literal? Of course it's literal. Contextually, it's literal. All the way through here, he's spoken of literal thrones, of literal angels, of literal martyrs, of Christ who is literal, of an antichrist who's literal, of a false prophet who's literal, of an image that men worship that was literal, of the number of the beasts, 666, that is literal. And so the 1,000 years is literal. A 1,000 years means a 1,000 years. God says what he means. He means what he says. And unless the plain reading should lead you otherwise, you should take it at face value because that's how Christ and all the apostles interpreted the prophetic portions of Scripture. So God left within Scripture how to interpret the prophetic sections. But of course, we have biblical ignorance running at pandemic levels across America, Most pastors don't open the scripture on Sunday morning. Some of you are here for the first time. You thought, why do I need to bring a Bible? I've never needed one before. You need one here. We have slides for the benefits, especially of first coming and people and some things that I can illustrate a little more easily or some scripture that, well, by the time I read it and you found it, we'd be past it. And so we put some scripture up there for a reason. But you need to bring a bible and if you don't own one come this evening to meet the pastor but biblical ignorance is at pandemic levels and so people think all this talk about a kingdom and a millennium and a thousand year reign you know that's for theologians that's not for me no it's for you all scripture is inspired by god god wrote this for us and god is going to speak of a coming time when what they had in Eden in some sense will be restored. Can you imagine what Eden was like? Can you imagine Adam and Eve telling Cain and Abel about how magnificent it was? They, they couldn't overstate it. You can't exaggerate a perfect place. Maybe the boy said, hey dad, do you think we could ever live in a place like that again? Maybe Adam said, well, we lived there once until your mother ate us out of house and home. Yeah, we were there once. And <laughs> now you can't blame, you can't blame Eve. Eve, Paul says, was deceived, but Adam sinned with his eyes opened. He knew precisely what he was doing. And you can't blame Adam and Eve together because the Bible teaches the solidarity of the human race. And so Paul says in Romans five twelve, when Adam sinned, everybody sinned. You and I were in the loins of Adam, so we're not victims of Adam's sins. According to Scripture, we were participants with Adam. And that's why we're born with this fallen Sinful nature, and so the scripture teaches. Though there's coming a day where there will be no more poverty, no more prisons, no more murders, no more hospitals, no more armies, no more abused children, no more mental institutions, and we will get a glimpse of what God intended for Adam and Eve, and by application at us had not sin entered into the world. Isaiah writes of this coming millennial reign where he says in Isaiah 35, the deserts shall blossom as a rose. And Habakkuk the prophet said, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what we call the millennium. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, we began studying this great doctrine of Scripture from a time sequence, what happens at the beginning of the millennium, what happens during the millennium, and this morning we're going to focus largely on what happens at the end of the millennium. Look again at verse 1, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. At the end of chapter 19, if you remember, the Antichrist and his false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. It's a reverse rapture. Just like my body is not suited for heaven, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This <coughs> excuse me, this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. Even so, a lost man's body is not suited for hell. He is not going to go in his natural body into hell if he were, he'd be exterminated in a second. That people in hell, as we will see, will experience literal pain and torment. Why? Because the scripture speaks not only of a resurrection of the just, but a resurrection of the lost. And so their bodies, in a moment's time, will be changed and cast into the lake of fire. They will be the very first two people in the lake of fire. Today, no one's in the lake of fire. No one is in Gehenna or what we call hell. Now, there is a place of torment they're in. It's called Hades. We're going to unfold this in the weeks ahead. But they'll be the first two recipients, so having dealt with two of the members in this unholy trinity, where Satan takes the place of the Father, the Antichrist takes the place of the Son, and the false prophet, the place of God the Holy Spirit who points men to Christ, the false prophet will point men to the Antichrist. Having dealt with two of the members, now he is at least for a time going to deal with Satan. Satan, who is described here in verse 1 as being taken hold of. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss in a great chain in his hand. This is an unnamed angel. And I think it's interesting that God would use an angel to accomplish this. It's just a reminder that Satan is not God's equal, and in some Christians' theology, they view Satan like he's omnipresent, like he's omniscient, that he's all-powerful, but he's not. He's a limited, created being, and God uses a simple angel in order to accomplish this locking up. Now, people will often say, well, why isn't he locked up already? Because God has a purpose, and we'll look at that this morning to some extent. God is a sinless God, and he can use, even in his sovereignty, sin in a sinless way. Luther had a lot of things right. He had some major issues wrong, but he was absolutely on target when he said, the devil is God's devil. In other words, Satan can't do anything but that which God allows. Verse 2, notice how he is described and what the angel does. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. There are many, many titles given to Satan. Here's four, the dragon, the serpent, the devil, and Satan. And each name reveals something about his character. The dragon he's looking for someone to devour. He is the serpent. He is looking for someone to deceive. He's called the devil. The word means to defame. He is looking for someone to defame. And he is Satan, which means he's our adversary. He's looking for someone to defeat. So Satan doesn't have the last word. The living God does. And so he's laid hold of and he's bound for a thousand years. This angel is empowered by heaven himself. Takes the devil, grabs hold of him, and throws him into the abyss for a thousand years. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, we studied that there are four places in which demons inhabit. There are those that Paul describes in Ephesians 6. We wage war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities that are at work in the heavenly places. Daniel 10 describes a war between different angels over different countries. They're at work in the heavenly places. There's a group of angels that committed such a heinous sin. They're in a place called Tartarus, in eternal bonds, a subcompartment ultimately of hell. And then there are angels in the abyss. These angels are fallen angels who committed such a wicked thing. God doesn't give them freedom to taunt and to tempt man. And of course, we saw in our study of the Revelation a few years back that the abyss will be open. Well, during the thousand years, Satan will be put in the abyss... And of course, the final resting place for angels will be the lake of fire. But for now, just know that God is going to let this angel bind Satan so that he can deceive no one during this time. Right now, Satan is working. He's energizing the sons of disobedience. People say, well, the devil tempted me. I doubt it, maybe. He certainly has hosts of demons. But very often all he does is he works in a few key instruments here and there who are energizing the world system maybe some false theology maybe some dirty movie maybe some grotesque aspect of immorality and he gets people across the world to feed on it with their sinful nature and so today satan has a mission he gets people to believe what's untrue And so people create untruths, they speak untruths, they wear it on their clothing, they are deceived. And that's the nature of deception. But during this time, he'll be able to deceive no one. People who are deceived don't know they're deceived. That's why they believe it. They think they are believing what's true, and they'll fight you over it. Abortion is a woman's right. They're convinced it's true, though their conscience at one time shouted at them that it was false transgenderism is right. Homosexuality is right. Living with someone to whom you're not married, it's right. That's what deception believes. And they think it's no big deal and God doesn't really care as long as I'm not hurting anyone. So Satan will be bound. And so Christ's kingdom commences with his, with him being incarcerated. Look at verse four. Then I saw thrones And they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony. What testimony? They believed in Jesus. They refused the Antichrist, and they believed in Jesus because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God. And that's how people are saved. In any true movement of God, there should be preaching of the Word of God. Singing is not a revival. Singing doesn't change lives. It's something that people should do in response to the word of God. But what we have seen taking place in Kentucky was no revival. Especially when you have gay people on the platform leading the music. Especially when you have false teachers who are being embraced and prayed over. That's no revival. That's a deception. And so because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast, that's the Antichrist, or his image. Remember, the Jewish people will have their eyes open. They'll think initially this Antichrist is their Messiah. But when he commits the abomination of desolation, God's Messiah would never break the decalogue. And when there's an image that people are asked to worship, they will know he can't possibly be the promised one. And so these who are beheaded did not follow the Antichrist, they didn't worship at his image, they didn't receive the mark on their forehead or on their hand, 666, and they come to life, and they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. These who have been beheaded, martyred for the faith, as earlier in the Revelation unfolds, They are now raised up to life. This is the same group that's found in Revelation 6 and in chapter 7. And they paid the ultimate price for their faith. And if you know Jesus, you'll be willing to pay the ultimate price. Someone puts a gun to your head. Deny Christ. You won't. Now, you might pray the gun would misfire, but you won't deny Jesus. They lost their heads guillotine, or say, Antichrist is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And they lost their heads. And so now they're raised. And there are different kinds of saints in the Bible. Remember, there's Old Testament saints. There are church saints. There are tribulation saints. There are millennial saints. And so the context must determine... Not only will tribulation saints reign, church saints will reign. Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy 2. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now to be very clear, John also describes this other group who are mentioned kind of as a parenthesis of sorts in verse five to make it very clear that they will not reign. Look at verse five, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. And so the first resurrection are made up of believers. We'll see in the weeks to follow, the second resurrection is made up of all unbelievers. And so their ultimate judgment will be at the end of the thousand year reign of the Messiah. Verse six, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for how long? For a thousand years. Twice over in verse 5 and again here in verse 6, John speaks of the first resurrection, which is obviously important to him. And only those who are blessed and holy are those who are part of the first resurrection. Now, don't miss the fact that if there's a first resurrection, that must mean there's a second resurrection, Now, last time we discussed what we call amillennialism or amillennialists, and they have come to the false conclusion based on the anti-Semitically driven Roman Catholic Church that God has done with the Jew. I did a sermon some years back and I just quoted Pope after Pope after Pope and their evil anti-Semitic remarks. Since the destruction of six million Jews, they're a little hesitant to come right out and say those things. But it is an anti-Semitically driven church. Their theology says God is done with the Jew. We, the Roman church, are king. And so based on the fact that God was done with the Jewish people, that was rooted in anti-Semitism amillennialism developed. Here's what it looks like in a chart. And there are Bible-believing Christians today who are not anti-Semitic, but they are amillennial. Millennial, remember, means a thousand. Ah, the alpha cancels it. So they say there's no literal thousand-year reign of the Messiah. There's apostasy, there's always been apostasy, and there has always been apostasy, that's true. But there's coming a day where there is the apostasy that God speaks of in 2 Thessalonians 2. And then they say the next event after the church is over is the second coming of Jesus to the earth. Uh, We stand in one big general judgment. The saved go to heaven, the lost go to hell, and that's it. So they view just one big general resurrection. Now, Of course, the scripture speaks differently. In the broadest sense, there is the resurrection of the just, and there's a resurrection of of the unjust, or the unsaved. And the first resurrection has three component aspects to it. If you remember, God dictated for Israel seven feasts that they were to honor. And it's part of what I think, among other things, kept the people of Israel together for all these 2,000 years since they were scattered to the four winds of the earth. How? Because God had this schedule that he would have them follow. And there would be seven feasts every year that they continue to celebrate even to this day. What many of them don't see unless they are a believing Jew is that the four fall feasts or the four spring feasts were fulfilled in the first coming. It's not by accident that Jesus literally actually died on Passover, that his sinless body was placed in the grave over the first day of unleavened bread, that he came out of the grave on first fruits, and then at Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection the Spirit of God came. So you have this typology in the Old Testament. And so one of the types concerns what we call the feast of first fruits. Paul mentions it in First Corinthians 15, where he says, Christ being the first fruits, and after that they who are Christ at his coming. Are, and so he speaks here of this first resurrection. And the first resurrection, just like the Feast of first fruits, if you study it in the book of Leviticus, there are three aspects to the feast, and there are three aspects to this coming first resurrection. Um, as pictured here, you have a priest. Of course, he'd be in the temple. Obviously, I couldn't find a, a picture of a priest in a temple. This is a cartoon, but this is the only one that would come out clear. But nonetheless, he would take out there in the field a sheaf, of wheat, and he would wave it. It was called a wave offering. And the single sheath represented the Lord Jesus, and this small group of uh, strands of grain represented what would happen after Jesus was raised from the dead. There's an often overlooked verse. On Resurrection Sunday, the first fruits of all creation, the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrected body was the Lord Jesus. But then Matthew notes... The tombs were opened. Why does Matthew alone note it? Because it's a Jewish gospel who understood things like the Feast of First Fruits. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints, what saints? Old Testament saints. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. So Jesus and these Old Testament saints are the first fruits together, giving a picture of a harvest that would come. A brother here this morning, a farmer, gave us some strawberries. It was first fruits just on Friday. And I've eaten almost all of them. They were great. But you see, that's just a glimpse of the harvest that is going to come. And what Jesus and that handful of Old Testament saints who came out and resurrected bodies after him, that's just a glimpse of what is going to come. And so included in the first resurrection is also the church that will be raptured. And so all the believers who have died over the last 2,000 years and those who are alive when Jesus comes for his church, we read this, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. And the word there is from a Latin, in the Latin Bible, gives us our English word rapture, harpazo in Greek, will be snatched away, will be caught up. To meet the Lord, we're in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. We're gonna meet one another going up and we'll see Jesus in the air. This is an entirely distinct event from when he comes to the earth and plants his feet on the Mount of Olives. So the rapture takes place first. This could happen today if God so chose. So stage one is Christ, and then that handful of Old Testament saints. Stage two is a broader resurrection, the rapture. Stage three is where we are focusing this morning of Old Testament saints and tribulation saints who are raised. And that will happen at the second coming. It's all part of the resurrection program. Do you remember Daniel chapter 12? Listen to this word, Daniel 12 verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, you know Michael the archangel? The great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, talking about the Jewish people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Sounds familiar? That's Matthew twenty four, twenty-one and twenty-two. An unprecedented time, Jesus said that it will be so awful, unless those days had been cut short, nobody could have survived it. He's talking about the same thing. He's talking about what happens at the end of the 70th week of the prophecy that he wrote at the end of the seven years. A time of distresses has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So the only ones rescued by resurrection are Old Testament saints at the end of this time of distress, and they will experience everlasting life. Jesus, by the way, spoke of two kinds of resurrection in John chapter 5, if you remember. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. And it's the word hora, meaning a, a time is coming. He's not speaking of an exact hour. John uses and puts in the mouth of Jesus who spoke Aramaic the nuance of what he was communicating. A time frame is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good, you'll see deeds are in italics, right, you see it in your Bible. Uh, That means it's not part of the original. It's added there by the translators because it's implied. Those who did the good, to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil or the evil deeds or works, to a resurrection of life. Is Jesus saying that you're saved by good or evil? No, he just taught in the verses that preceded this that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. But if you are born again and regenerated from above, your life changes. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. And if you know Jesus, your life takes on a new direction. There are people running around today, I'm born again, I could care less about the church, I'm born again, but I sleep with my girlfriend, I'm born again, and I like to get buzzed every weekend, I'm born again, and I'm transgender, and I'm this, and I'm that, and their life has never changed. And so Jesus says, look, there are those whose lives have been changed, they'll be part of a resurrection of life, and then there are those who'll be part of a resurrection of judgment. Two kinds of resurrection. And so there are several events Uh, that will unfold in the first resurrection. And we'll study this a little bit more in detail. The first resurrection doesn't happen in one moment. Just like there's the first death and the second death. Does the first death happen in one moment? No, it has been happening for 6,000 years. Even so with the first resurrection program. The church will be raised up. Old Testament saints will be raised up. Tribulation saints who are martyred will be raised up. And they'll all be a part of this coming program. There's the general ingathering, and then at the second coming, the gleanings are picked up. The three phases of the Feast of First Fruits will literally be fulfilled. That's a sermon in itself. Now, I'm not here to make fun of my amillennial brothers. I love them. I had one speak in our pulpit, Alistair Big. Love them to death. Had lunch with them several occasions. I'm not here to make fun, but you have to really manipulate and disembowel the plain reading of scripture. You say, well, how do you know that your interpretation of the scripture is correct? Because when you, what I find too, by the way, let me just say parenthetically, I'm not saying about this big or anybody else you can think of. What I have found with most people who are millennials, they've never really studied the prophetic sections of scripture. Because you get into a discussion with them and they don't know who's on first. I've been pouring over this for 40 years. I preach exegetically, verse by verse, so you can't skip over passages of Scripture. And you find within the Scripture how to interpret the prophetic portions of Scripture. Scripture. The apostles in Christ and the Old Testament prophets, when they interacted with each other over prophetic portions, literally, plainly interpreted the scripture. And so there's a literal raising that is going to happen. There's not just one big general raising and judgment where they're all separated out. Look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. By the way, you might ask, well, how do they interpret first resurrection and second resurrection if they are millennial? I'll tell you. They say the first resurrection is when you die and your spirit goes to heaven. The second resurrection is when your body comes out of the grave. But in every place in Scripture where a physical resurrection is mentioned, when the term resurrection is mentioned, it's of a literal, actual body coming back to life, being raised up. A spirit can't be resurrected. So again, you, you, you really have to take the plain truth and ignore it and you come up with some weird interpretations. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Wow, what a promise. What a promise. Those of us who are church saints, Old Testament saints who are resurrected at the second coming, tribulation saints who are resurrected, along with the apostles, will literally rule and reign for a thousand years. Now that's all by way of review. This morning, we want to look at what happens at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, especially as it relates to Satan, since he is really the key figure that is mentioned. Three simple truths I want you to see. First, the devil and his freedom. The devil and his freedom. The devil is now freed from the abyss. Notice verse seven. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. So we're told precisely, chronologically, that this happens in the prophetic schedule when the thousand years are completed. That is at the end of the kingdom age, which means during this thousand years, the world is going to have an unparalleled time of peace and blessing. Why? Because Satan is bound. Any sin that surfaces during this thousand years will have nothing to do with Satan. It will have everything to do with our fallen Adamic nature. Now, people ask me, on occasion, I've been asked it many times over the years, well, what's the purpose of the millennium? I mean, why doesn't Jesus just come back, sweep us all to heaven, get rid of the lost in hell, and just close the whole program? I'll give you six reasons why he's not going to do it that way. There's a chart here. You can jot these down if you want. Six reasons why God will literally reign upon the earth. Reason number one, to prove his kingdom promises to Israel. God is first going to prove the promises he made to the people of Israel. Of course, the fact that the Messiah will reign over the earth is embedded in virtually every Old Testament prophet. For instance, God promised King David this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. That's never happened nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. That's never happened. But then God made a promise about Messiah's throne. When your days are complete, when you're dead, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. He'll be in your lineage. Remember, Messiah will be from the house of David. And I will establish his kingdom. How do I know this is not Solomon? He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever, forever. And this is a repeated prophecy found in dozens of Old Testament passages, and it's confirmed on the day Gabriel makes the announcement to Mary. There in Nazareth, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Israel will be in the land, and for the first time she'll fully encompass the land. When you read the boundaries in the Old Testament that God promised Israel, and you look on a map today of Israel, it's like, is this the same country? (laughs) It's just a little slice, what they have today. But what is pictured in Scripture is a much larger piece of property that God promised to them that even in the height of their glory under kings like David and Solomon, they never received. But God promised it. And God will keep his promises. Second, One of the purposes for the millennium is to prove his initial intention for man. God is going to show his initial intention for man. He gives us a snapshot of what God originally intended for Adam and Eve and for those of us who had come from their loins, had not sin entered into the world. In Genesis 128, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That was God's intent from the beginning, that man was to rule over the creation, but Adam sacrificed his right to rule when sin entered into the world. But that's going to change. God, during the thousand-year reign, will give us a snapshot of what it could have been like. For instance, in Isaiah 65 and verse 20, no longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. What does the amillennialist do with this text? They say, well, this is just a description of heaven. And so there's a very popular book on heaven, who's written by an amillennialist, and he says, this is the future. It has nothing to do with the future. There's no death in heaven. You got ye little, no longer will little children die. And if a man dies at 100. He's considered a youth. You know, you, 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 and during that time, you say, hey, hey, young man, you know, I see you're 100 years old, and you won't be joking either. It will be true. He's just a young man at that point. People will live much like before the days of the great flood, an extended period of time. And then the prophet goes on in the next verse and says, they will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. The millennial reign will be perfect justice in one sense because Christ will be ruling with a rod of iron. Never again will someone be robbed of their hard labor. Now, we read a verse like that and we think, what's the big deal? But there are many parts of the world where people put their sweat and blood into growing things and then it's stolen. Not during the Messiah's reign, Things are going to change, and things are changing in America. We've taken so much of our freedoms for granted. When I first went to the Ukraine in 1998, and I saw all the protective measures people had to take just so they didn't get ripped off. There was theft everywhere. You go into the church, and the church couldn't even put bars of soap in the restroom because people would steal it. That's what 70 years of saying no to God did to that nation and so many of the communist satellites. And that's what's happening to America. We're raising our puny little fist in God's face and we say we don't need him and we have violence and police being killed and innocent people being harmed and children being abused. This is what happens when a nation says no to God. When I was a child, we never locked our house except when we went on vacation. Most of the time, my dad left the keys in the car. That all changed in the late 70s and early 80s. But there's gonna be a harmony with man and the creation and even the surrounding, in fact, he tells us not only will the desert bloom like a rose, he'll go on in Isaiah 11 and say, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. And then he says a few verses later, a baby will play over the hole of a snake, or you could render it a cobra, over the nest of a serpent. An infant will put his hand. They will no longer injure or destroy on my entire royal mountain, for there will be universal submission to the Lord's sovereignty, just as the waters completely cover the sea. You have experienced it. I've been told it many times, almost slanderously, Certainly, ignorantly, if God is so great and so loving, why is there so much evil in the world? God will prove during the millennium because of man's rebellious, sinful nature. That's why there's so much evil. This is never what God intended, and God's going to give us a snapshot of what he did intend. Third purpose for the millennium is not just to prove God's promises to Israel and for mankind, but to prove his promises to the church. Paul wrote to the Corinthians of their future, and by way of application, our future, that some way, in some fashion, we will judge the world. He'll write in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Likewise, Paul said this to the church at Rome in the fifth chapter, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness... That's you if you've been saved. Salvation isn't earned, it's a gift received. But if you've received the gift of righteousness because your righteousness like mine is like a filthy rag, you need to receive a righteousness that will allow you to know the Lord now and that will carry you to heaven. But those who receive this righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So sprinkled all the way through the gospels and the epistles are these promises that the church will reign with the Lord Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 2. He said, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. By the way, it's clear in the Revelation, you're not saved by overcoming. You're not saved by persevering. But if you are saved, you will persevere. If you are saved, you will overcome. And to those who overcome, that's a fruit of conversion, he will indeed give authority over the nations. And then in the next verse, he quotes Psalm 2. Listen to this. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. If you're new to the Bible, when you see that change of types, that you immediately think Old Testament quotation. If you have a Bible with uh, marginal notes, it will tell you where it's from. If you don't have a Bible like that, come tonight to meet the pastor. You'll be gifted one. He shall rule with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my Father. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not simply to the church at Thyatira, but with the seven letters that he writes to seven churches, he ends each letter with, let him hear what he says to the churches, meaning this is not simply a promise for the saints in Thyatira, it's a promise to every believer in every church. But Psalm 2, if you know it, it's God the Father promising this to God the Son, but here's God the Son saying that we're going to enjoy it with him. Paul said it, we already read it, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. Christ said this in Revelation 3.21, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Again, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not just Laodicea, but churches like this one this is all part of the coming kingdom. And so in Revelation 5 and verse 10, it says you have made them the body of Christ, that is the church and tribulation saints and Old Testament saints to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. And that's what John is echoing here in the 20th chapter. They will reign with Christ for a thousand years. God the Father has given the right for the Son to rule and reign and he promises that we are going to do it with us. Now there's another purpose for the millennium. Not just to keep his promises to Israel, because God is a promise-keeping God, not just to prove what he originally intended for man, not simply to keep his promises to the church, but notice the next one. God is going to prove his promises that he made to God the Son, the promises that he made to God the Son. We just read a glimpse of it in passages like Psalm 2. The Father appointed his Son, to rule and to reign, and someday to inherit the nations of the world. If you remember in Luke 4, Matthew 4, Satan comes along and he tempts Jesus. If you'll skip the cross and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. And that was a legitimate offer. Because when Adam lost it, Satan received it. The kingdoms, not the kingdom, but the kingdoms of this world. And of course, Christ knew that Satan's offer was nothing more than sawdust and sand. And he immediately rejected it. But a day is coming. He will experience this. Listen to Revelation 11. The kingdom of the world. Please note, it does not say the kingdoms. Now, some English translations make it plural to smooth out the reading, but it's singular in the Greek text, and that's important. And so, in most people's mind, they think the kingdoms, especially because of Handel's Messiah, but in the Greek New Testament, it says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. When Jesus is tempted, it's the kingdoms, but when the Antichrist rules, he has one reign over the whole world, and it has become the kingdom. And when Jesus comes back, he'll have one kingdom as he rules over the entire world. And so his name is being mocked today. It is being used in vain. It is being dishonored. It is being walked over. But because he did what he did, God is going to honor the son. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Let me give a fifth reason for the millennium. In addition, he's going to prove his answer to our prayers. He's going to prove his answer to our prayers. Throughout the ages, throughout the Old Testament, God's saints were looking for this coming kingdom that he had promised Israel. And when Jesus was here 2,000 years ago, in the Lord's Prayer, as we often call it, people get all tangled, oh, don't call it the Lord's Prayer, it's a model prayer. Look, that's just semantical. He taught us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And every early church member, just like all the church fathers who wrote after the apostles died, literally believed in an actual coming kingdom. Well, this is an incredible prayer request. Believers have been expecting, at least in the early centuries, not in this day of ignorance, most people pray that, they have no idea what they're praying. But the church had been praying that your will be done literally on earth, just like it's being done in heaven. Has he ever answered that prayer yet? No. Will he? Yes. Jesus would not ask you to pray something out of the Father's will. He is going to literally answer this. His kingdom will come, and his will will literally be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, there's another reason for the millennium, but we'll come to it in a moment as we walk through our passage, because it will better fit in there. But the first thing I want you to see is that for a thousand years, the devil will have zero freedom. He'll be in this prison of sorts known as the abyss, but in the end, he is going to be loose. So there's the devil and his freedom. That moves us secondly to the devil and his forces, the devil and his forces. Let's start reading again in verse seven. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So after being bound in this bottomless pit, he is released for a short time. Now you might be thinking, why on earth would God free the devil? Francis Schaeffer, theologian of former years, as asked that question. He said, well, if you can tell me why God released him the first time, I can tell you why he'll release him the second time. Well, obviously God had a reason because God is gonna do it and he may not spell it all out, but there's enough here for us to see that we can comprehend and follow. And what this will prove is that the devil is unredeemable, that the devil is irredeemable, that he's unrepentant, that he lives in a stubborn rebellion, that he thinks somehow in his twisted fallen way, that he can usurp the power of the Messiah, and in defiance he's gonna gather this army of people to go against Jesus who's ruling upon the earth. Which brings us to the sixth reason for the millennium, and that is to deprove the depraved nature of man. The millennium will show just what we are really by nature, that we are depraved. When we speak of the doctrine of total depravity, we're not saying that man is as bad as he can be, but man is as bad off as he can be. We're not saying that he can't do good, but he doesn't do good as he should. And the good that he does is often tainted by wrong motives and by his own fallenness. And so what this thousand years will underscore is just how depraved we are. You know, people sing that hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. The man who wrote it saw himself as a wretch in his slave trading. We say, well, you know, I may be a sinner, but I'm not really a wretch, you know. But the more you grow in Christ, The more you see really what you really are by nature and just how fallen we are. And Paul, when he wants us to see how depraved we are by nature, strings together a number of Old Testament passages and he writes this in Romans three. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. And the thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth will show beyond a shadow of a doubt how true this is, with absolutely zero ability for Satan to deceive and to craft evil on the planet, with Jesus literally ruling on the throne in Jerusalem as God had promised by the prophets, as Gabriel affirmed to Mary at his incarnation, people will still reject Jesus. And so Satan will come out, the scripture says, to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the world. That anyone would respond really shows how depraved we are. You know, people sometimes say to me, well, you know, God knows I'm a good person. I follow my heart. And God would say the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The body of Christ recognizes as they mature that indeed there is none righteous, that by nature we do not seek God. And if you sought God as a little boy or girl, it was only in response to the Spirit of God working in your heart first, probably largely due to the prayer of your parents or maybe your grandparents. But what I want you to see is that Satan is not in control of the abyss, And by the way, he's not even in Hades yet, and he's not even in the lake of fire. People have this view of Satan that, you know, he's down in the flames of hell on this devil suit with a pitchfork, and he's poking people and getting them to shovel coal and all this. No, he's not even in the uh, Hades, he's not in the lake of fire, he's not going to someday when God opens the lake of fire to the devil and his fallen angels and all the lost people of all time. He won't be in charge, Adonai will be in charge. God will be the king of hell, not Satan. So when we come here to verse eight, it's important that we ask and answer two critical questions. First, Who will Satan be deceiving? And then secondly, why would anyone choose to follow him with Jesus reigning on the earth? So first, let's think this through for just a moment. Who is it that Satan will be deceiving? Now again, I've told you that in millennialism, they think there's just one big judgment. There's no literal kingdom and God will separate the lost from the saved and that's it. But if you've been studying with us in this series, you know that's impossible. In fact, there's a number of resurrections and judgments. The first one we studied was the church saints at the rapture. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every saved person will give an account as a saved person to see how he's rewarded in heaven. and It will largely have to do with how you serve the local church. People ask me all the time, Someone just asked me over the weekend, can I become, can I have a place of service in the church without becoming a member? And I said, no. They said, why not? Because the New Testament teaches membership. When the Bible says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they give watch over your souls. If you're not willing to be accountable to your leaders, if you're not willing to be accountable to the congregation who congregationally exercise church discipline, Matthew unfolds for us. If you're not willing to plant yourself in a local church where you employ your gift in serving one another, then it's one of three things. You're either in ignorance, you don't know this is something you should do, or B, you're in between churches, and I get that. People are looking for churches, but it shouldn't take more than a month or two to find one. Or three, you're living in disobedience. And why would I want a disobedient Christian to serve in the church? Because a disobedient Christian is not filled with the Spirit. And so there's the church saints that are caught up and evaluated. The Old Testament saints at Christ's second coming, we just read that from Daniel 12.2. Tribulation saints are raised at this time. We just read that in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. We studied a few weeks back how all the living Jews will be raised up at this time, uh, or evaluated at this time. Those Jewish people who survived the tribulation, they will, be re- they will stand before Jesus and separate it. True Israel versus false Israel. And we saw when the scripture says all Israel will be saved is not what people are making it out to be. All Israel in Paul's mind is all true Israel, those who are born again. And so they're separated, and then all the living Gentiles are separated out. We saw that. Next one on the, uh, there t- t- we go. Yeah, the, uh, the living Gentiles are separated at the second coming. We studied that, the, the, the judgment of the sheep and the goats, and it's based on how they treated the Jewish people, which give evidence of whether or not they've been born again or not. There won't be anti-Semites in heaven. Anti-Semitism in the New Testament is a mark of lostness. And if a Christian takes on anti-Semitism like any other sin, you better look out because God will discipline you. He'll take you to the shed. Then there's the resurrection and judgment of the antichrist and the false prophet. That happens at the second coming, that reverse rapture that we spoke of. And then a 1,000 years after the second coming, all the lost of all time are raised up and judged. And we'll see why. Why does God wait a 1,000 years? We're going to see why, God willing, in this series. And so these judgments are very clear. Here's a couple of pictures. Here's a picture of medieval art, and this is Roman Catholic art. Christ is on his throne, and he separates the lost and the right here into the lake of fire and the saved enjoy heaven. Just one big judgment. And this is what it looks like again in the next chart on our millennialism. Uh, The church, they say, has replaced Israel. God is done with the Jewish people. And so one leader in our country said, the fact that Israel became a nation is no more significant than Uganda having their independence. The next event is the second coming, but there's no kingdom on earth, one general resurrection, one general judgment. You just have to spiritualize the text to no end and you distort its meaning. Now, who are these people and why are they rebelling? Remember Matthew chapter 13, it says the son of man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness." Matthew 13 concerns the kingdom parables. Matthew 12 represents the official rejection of the leaders of Israel that Jesus is their Messiah. And so in Matthew 13, Jesus answers the question, well, what is God going to do then for Israel? And he makes it clear that he hasn't canceled the kingdom. He has simply postponed it. But when he comes back at the second coming, there'll be no unbelievers that will enter it. We studied this some weeks back in Matthew 24. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding in the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. This is in reference to the second coming. At the rapture, you don't want to be left behind because that means you're an unbeliever. But at the second coming, you want to be left behind. Now, Hal Lindsey creatively said, this is the rapture. It has nothing to do with the rapture. He sold books on sensationalism. He was a serial adulterer, married four times, and confronted by some of my own friends. We used to use him as an illustration at Dallas Seminary of how not to teach the Scriptures. Those who are left are analogous to what happened in Noah's day. Noah and his family are left to enter into a brand new world. And those who are alive at the great flood, they're carried away into judgment. And so at the second coming, unbelievers are removed from the kingdom. Every stumbling block. And the only ones who enter into the kingdom are those who are believers. And this is what we call the premillennial view. And again, as this chart shows, that's what the church fathers, they were a group of men who wrote after the apostles. We have tons of their writings. They taught that when Jesus comes back at the second coming, he will literally raise Old Testament saints, tribulation saints will be raised, surviving believers will enter the kingdom, and he will rule and reign for a thousand years. That's what they taught. They taught there would be a literal tribulation period followed by a literal second coming where Jesus will rule and reign for a 1,000 years. So in the broadest sense, there are two kinds of believers who enter into the kingdom. Now, don't miss this. This will be important for you to understand what we call a pre-tribulational rapture. Two kinds of believers that will enter the kingdom. Those who survive the tribulation and they enter in their natural bodies and those who will enter in their resurrection bodies. Now, in a resurrection body, the Bible says, Jesus said, we'll be like the angels. We don't become angels, but we're like angels in that we neither marry nor are given in marriage, and we don't procreate. We don't have children. And so notice, that's the theological backdrop to verses seven and eight. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and will come out to deceive the nations that are on the four corners of the earth. Now, think this through. When Christ comes back to finish our salvation, We receive a resurrection body. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. We call that justification. We are being saved from the power of sin. That's called sanctification. We will be saved from the presence of sin. That's called glorification. For our citizenship, Paul wrote, is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. In other words, we'll be like Jesus. We will never sin again once our salvation is completed. John says that when he appears, we will be like him. Why? Because we will will see him just as, because we will see him just as he is. We'll be like him, resurrected. When you make a choice to receive Jesus as Lord, God puts an eternal hook in you by that choice where you are eternally secure, and when your salvation is complete, you will never sin again. Yet here at the end of the thousand years, we got this massive rebellion. Who are these people? These are those who entered into the kingdom in their natural bodies. So who will Satan be deceiving? Not the first generation of tribulation saints and Jews who entered into the kingdom in their natural bodies because once you're saved, you're always saved. You can't lose it, but they're gonna have children and grandchildren. Look, my wife and I, our marriage started will be 43 years ago and June is just her and I. We got 25 in our tree now. and It's still growing. If I somehow got saved during the tribulation and married Audrey, and I lived for a thousand years, I'd have a lot of kids. I mean, we'd have a lot of grandkids. We'd have a lot of great, great grandkids. Look, just because I'm saved doesn't mean my children are saved. God has children. He has no grandchildren. And so there will be people during the reign of Messiah who will not receive Jesus as Lord. You say that's virtually impossible. No more impossible than he, when he literally walked on the earth and he cared for people and gave sight to the blind and unstopped deaf ears and healed paralyzed limbs and fed hungry people and cast out demons and some still rejected him. Now he will rule with a rod of iron during this time and man will submit to it outwardly, but inwardly he'll still have to make a decision And so he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the world. The world will be repopulated. They're compared to like the sand of the seashore. Wow. Now, think with me further. He says here, Gog and Magog, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together. Now, if you remember early in this series, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, we studied the war of Gog and Magog. Here's a chart. We saw the principal player is Rosh. It's Russia, Iran, and Turkey. And there's two other nations. It's a total of at least five nations. Some of those could be subdivided. You could come up with more than five. But basically five regions, biblically speaking, that are going to attack Israel. This is not the same battle. This is an entirely different battle. In fact, here's a chart that will remind you that there is three coming battles. There is the battle of Gog and Magog. It concerns a handful of nations that will go against Israel. I take it, it could happen before the rapture, but I think most likely it will happen after the rapture. We know it happens at the very end of time before the millennial reign of Christ. So it's somewhere in that time frame. I would argue shortly after the rapture, and it would be a setup for the rebuilding of the temple. We've got a whole message on that if you're interested. That's different from the Battle of Armageddon that Revelation 16. Uh, describes it happens uh, in conjunction with Christ's return. And that's different from this battle of Gog and Magog that happens at the end of the thousand years. So three different battles. And of course, you don't want to twist and mix those up. Now, I think it's interesting. You can literally remove Gog and Magog, and it doesn't change the meaning of the text. And uh, the devil will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth. To gather them together for the war, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So while we can tell from scripture that this is a distinct event, I think it has taken on some symbolic meaning. Kind of like Armageddon, you know, someone just last week, I heard them on the news, you know, they described what we've seen in Turkey and Syria, now 50,000 people dead. This Armageddon-like disaster, the person reporting there from Turkey. And so Armageddon is kind of a catchword for any catastrophic event. Well, this emblematically will be similar to the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel because it's against Israel and it's against Israel's Messiah, Jesus, who's literally ruling on the throne. Look at verse nine. I'm almost done. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. You know the beloved city, it's Jerusalem. So they circle the city They encircle it to attack Jesus and his saints who are ruling from Jerusalem, which brings us quickly to the devil and his finale. So beyond the devil and his freedom and the devil and his forces, there's the devil and his finale. Now again, if somehow the post-tribulationist was right and we're here for the tribulation and we go up at the end of the seven-year period and we come down, then everybody is in a resurrection body and nobody can sin. So the amillennialist just throws out the whole millennial kingdom. But if you believe there's a kingdom and the promises to Israel are unconditional in nature, you can come to no other conclusion but a pre-tribulational rapture. That's the only way you can have sin at the end of the thousand years. Are you following that? You get it? There's many, many reasons why the scripture teaches a pre-tribulational rapture. So here we are, the devil and his finale. Verse 10, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And notice, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Not one shot is fired. Not one sword is unsheathed. Suddenly the sky bursts with a ring of flame, and it comes down, and it's over. Immediate judgment, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast, the antichrist, and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. So Satan will be in the place where, notice, the Antichrist and the false prophet are. How long have they been there? A thousand years. So I was witnessing recently to a Jehovah's Witness. He said, well, unbelievers who go to hell, they're annihilated. I said, now, here's an illustration of two people who have been in the lake of fire for a thousand years. And they're still very much alive. We'll come to that. How can we apply this text of scripture? Number one, first, there's a lesson for us here concerning our fallenness. There's a lesson concerning our fallenness. Under the theocracy of Jesus with Satan bound in the abyss, people will do what they did with Jesus the first time. Many of them, like the sand of the seashore, will reject him. You say, that's almost inconceivable. No, it is a reminder of how fallen and depraved man is. Secondly, there's a lesson here about God's ultimate victory. There's a lesson here about God's ultimate victory. Now, God will certainly never take away your free will. And while Jesus outwardly rules with a rod of iron, inwardly people have to decide and based on how you decide, will determine whether or not you share in this victory. The good news in the end is that God wins. And if you've been saved, you'll be on the winning side. You know, when I look around and I see people today whose lives are so messed up, I mean, as a pastor, I deal with messed up people every week. And with compassion in my heart, I say, there go I, but by God's grace. And with a sense of victory in perspective, I say, a hell z could be changed. A hell z could be forgiven. The person who's on his fifth marriage could be forgiven and receive a fresh start. God can change the drug addict. God can change the the person who fornicates with women everywhere. God can change the person who has no care for the things of God. But God will ultimately be victorious. And we'll see more of that victory next time. Finally, there's a lesson here about man's need to believe. I mean, this world is messed up, and it's not getting better. But I know we're on the winning side if we have believed. Have you received Him? Here we see these people with hard hearts. You say, Pastor, how can a person's heart get hard by saying no to Jesus? This is the judgment that the light is coming to the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Every time you choose evil, you're hardening your heart. And if you do it long enough as an unbeliever, you won't be able to hear at some point. The devil will be given permission to take the seed, Jesus said, that they may not believe and be saved. Today is the day of salvation. When you hear the message... Don't harden your heart. Father, thank you for this text of scripture that you've given to your people for us to read, to study, and to be changed by. I pray that we would see people as you see them, that we know you saved us out of our depravity and in your mercy you've given us a righteousness that we could not earn. You've planted the spirit in us that we could be changed. Help us, our Holy Father, to walk in newness of life, help us to have compassion on the people that we see and encounter every week. Some who seemingly have it all together, but they are headed for an eternity without you. I pray today for someone within the sound of my voice who's unsure of their salvation, that they would understand that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners that he came to seek and to save that which is lost, that whosoever will may come, that whoever will call on the name of Yeshua will be saved. Help someone to say, Jesus, save even me. We ask it, Jesus, in your name. Amen.